welcome to our podcast, Making Sense of Science. The show run by Leaps.org that features interviews with leading experts about the latest developments in health, science, and technology. I'm your host, Matt Fuchs, the editor of Leaps.org. That may come as a surprise to some of you, used to hearing Kira Peikoff's voice. She's the founding editor of Leaps.org, but as she mentioned during her last podcast, she's departed to take an opportunity as editor of a new startup focusing on the neuroscience of happiness. And she's handed over the keys to me to run Leaps.org, and I couldn't be more excited about the role, including the chance to host this podcast. By way of introduction, I am a writer, editor, and former senior advisor for nonprofits in the federal government. I've actually been a frequent writer for Leaps.org over the years. In addition to being a regular contributor to the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and Wired Magazine on health and technology topics. But enough about me. Today, I'm lucky enough to be kicking off my podcasts by talking about health innovation with someone who knows more about it than just about anybody else. Dr. Sudip Parikh, the 19th Chief Executive Officer of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS. He's the executive publisher of the very highly respected science journals, and he had an extensive background in health before coming to AAAS. For example, as vice president at Patel, overseeing research, development of medicines and healthcare devices, and AI to improve health. Not only that, Sudip was on the Hill for nine years, serving as a science advisor in the Senate, where he negotiated budgets for the National Institute of Health, CDC, and other health agencies. He's spent two decades at the nexus of science, policy, and business. He's brilliant in multiple areas, both in policy, and he's also got a PhD in macromolecular structure and chemistry from the Scripps Research Institute and an undergrad degree from the University of North Carolina. In this podcast episode... Sudip and I talk about reasons to be excited about health innovations coming down the pike rapidly, as well as his thoughts about some innovation areas we should be especially cautious about. We talk about Sudip's strategies for how scientists can better communicate with the public, things that he and AAAS are doing to instill greater trust in science, how to nurture more love of STEM subjects for school-aged children, the right role for experts in society, And we fit quite a few other fascinating topics into our 35 minutes. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. I'm really thrilled to introduce my guest, Suda Parikh. Hi, Suda. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Nice to talk to you. Great. Well, I thought we could start with some personal background. It would be terrific if you could tell me about your family's move from Mumbai to North Carolina. What were your early experiences like in North Carolina? And I'm, I'm curious specifically how your experiences might have shaped your interest and eventual career path in science. Yeah. Um, gosh, well, my father was uh, working in the textile industry in Mumbai, um, in India. And uh, my uh, uncle uh, had, uh, had been a geologist working as a postdoc in France. And he was recruited to come to the U.S. to work for NASA uh, during the Apollo missions. Uh, they were actually hiring geologists at the time. So my, uh, my young uncle came to America and, um, and worked for the, the space program for a few years. Uh, and during that time, he, um, uh, because of the passage of the Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1965, 
uh, was able uh, to invite over uh, my, uh, my parents, my father uh, at the time. And uh, my father came. And by the time that my father was able to come to the U.S., my uncle had left NASA and had become a professor at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, population 6,000 um, uh, in the western part of the state. And my, my father uh, got off the plane uh, from, uh, from India and uh, took a ride to, to Boone, North Carolina and fell in love with the place. Uh, so my father uh, ended up making, making a home uh, close by in a, in a town called Granite Falls and eventually a, a, the big city of Hickory, North Carolina, uh, and, uh, and ended up living there for 40 years um, and, uh, and, and absolutely made it home. I always joke that you know, he, he came home to a place he'd never been before, which is a quote in John Denver. Uh, he he really, uh, really loved it there. Uh, my uncle eventually moved to California and became a geologist for the state of California, but my, my father stayed in North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, and I grew up there. Uh, I grew up in Hickory. Uh, it had a profound impact upon me. Uh, you know, what I saw was um, uh, a part of the country that, that really uh, did manufacturing, uh, the textile industry, the furniture industry. Uh, it was a place where you could... Uh, get a high school degree and um, and make a living. Uh, and my my father worked in the furniture factories and the textile mills of Hickory for for those forty years. My my mom uh, came and and joined him, uh, and uh, she she did so as well. She worked in those same factories. And what it taught me was that uh, first of all that people people have many of the same wants and needs. They really care about the same things and that those values can be shared regardless of education level, regardless of, of religion, regardless of, um, of, uh, of previous experiences, if we take the time to get to know one another. And, uh, you know, as I've gone through my career, whether it's, uh, you know, originally choosing journalism in college or eventually the sciences, um, what I realize is you got to be able to relate to people regardless of your backgrounds, regardless of your education levels, uh, because fundamentally, uh, fundamentally, uh, if you if things are going right, you share some values um, uh, that can really be a, a common point of reference as you talk about more more complicated things. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, very important in today's situation where we have a lot of uh, polarization and people not talking to each other or thinking about what they have in common. Uh, maybe focusing more on their differences. Um, and I, I do have some questions about that later on, but I wanted to ask, you know, while we're talking about kind of your, your upbringing and your early experiences, you know, I, I know a lot of people who started out in college with science majors and switched over to journalism, but I think that you're one of those rare souls who started in journalism and then changed to science. And uh, I'm curious if uh, you lost interest in journalism or what led to that change of heart? It wasn't necessarily that I lost interest in journalism. You know, I, I, I care deeply about journalism because it's a way of telling stories and influencing narratives. Uh, and I think that's a, a really powerful and important profession. Um, when I was in college, uh, I was taking journalism courses, and, but I was also taking calculus. And my, I can remember it, uh, uh, Dr. Cloud, who was a professor at uh, University of North Carolina in the journalism department, said, why are you taking calculus? And I said, because I like it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was at that point we had a, we had a deep conversation about, was, is journalism really the right thing for me? Um, and so I did, uh, I did switch majors at that point. Um, I figured that 
you know, gosh, there was a lot of things I could, I could learn from a book. Um, uh, applied sciences was not one of them. I needed the classes. Uh, and so I switched my major to something called Material Applied Sciences at the University of North Carolina um, and, uh, and really uh, still tried to take as many electives as I could in the, in the humanities and in the social sciences uh, because those intrigued me as well. But the common thing between journalism and science is that I think you can influence the future for the better. You can influence the future for the better if you are, um, uh, if you are committed to telling stories that, uh, that shape the way people think. Um, and you can, you know, the science tells us a story. Now, uh, don't get me wrong, there's a scientific method and there's a, there's a, lot, to, uh, there's a lot to figure out. But once, once, the, once the scientific experiment has been done, uh, you have to be able to communicate it. And, uh, and I think that shares a lot with journalism. Well, uh, I'm sure you would have been very successful either way, uh, but uh, cl clearly you, you made a, a good choice. It's, it's worked out well for you. And, uh, you know, I, I think that you're someone who is very persuasive in talking about the potential for scientific breakthroughs, um, getting people excited about science and what's possible. And so I want to ask, what's a major advancement in medicine and health that you foresee happening soon, uh, you know, maybe in the next few years, that'll make a difference in people's lives and that you think people should be, you know, interested in and, and sort of following uh, with interest? Yeah, I mean, in the next few years, and I, when I say next few, I mean in less than 10, um, I think that we are at a place where uh, the gene editing tools that were discovered uh, in the last decade uh, are going to make their way into people. And we're already seeing the first signs of this. Um, you've, uh, you see patients who are uh, being treated for sickle cell anemia, for thalassemia, uh, and they are, um, uh, it, it looks like these, uh, these gene editing treatments are going to be, um, uh, they're going to be long lasting. And so we've got, we've got several patients now that haven't had a blood trans transfusion for years uh, after having one of these gene editing techniques. Uh, the wonderful thing about these gene editing techniques is that they could be valuable for many, many uh, single point mutation and, uh, and similar uh, diseases. And what we're seeing is uh, some investment by government and by industry in creating um, delivery mechanisms for these gene editing technologies that uh, make it to where even though some of these diseases are only, they're, they're quite rare, um, because they can standardize the way you, um, the way you uh, make, the, make the treatment possible, it can be used for many, many, many different types of, um, of uh, mutations, which means that although any single mutation might just be a few hundred people or a few thousand people, it means that the total number of people that can be treated by these, um, these gene editing technologies could be in the, in the hundreds of thousands or even millions. Uh, and so that's something that's, that's just a few years away. And I think it's a, it's a revolution because it's, you know, in medicine, we often talk about treatment. We talk about prevention. We rarely, rarely talk about cure. Um, it, is, uh, it is a word that, as a scientist, you, you learn not to say. But, uh, but with these technologies, we really are talking about, if not cures, then certainly uh, long-lasting treatments. But then it gets even more exciting because if you look beyond, uh, beyond 10 years, you see technologies that are on the way um, uh, in terms of uh, making use of our understanding of, um, of the, not just the genome, but the proteome, 
the way that the body works in concert with the microbiome that's living inside of you. Uh, these are the, the cells that aren't you, but they live inside of you. Um, as we start to understand the interplay between, uh, between our own bodies and then the, the organisms that use us as hosts, um, there is a possibility of really changing fundamentally the way that medicine is practiced uh, and, uh, and what we're able to treat. And that is, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not 10 years away, uh, but my goodness, it's certainly, you can envision it. You can envision it. And when you think about where medicine comes from, you know, we, we think of the medicine of 100 years ago as being primitive. We think of it as, my gosh, they were using leeches. Uh, they didn't have uh, anesthesia. Uh, we're talking about that kind of progress. Uh, you know, the, the change that we've seen in the last century being made in the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, yet another step change in, uh, in healthcare and in, in medicine. And that is incredibly exciting. Yeah, that's uh, a lot to be hopeful about. Um but you know, I guess the other end of the uh, the flip side of that of that coin is that there is uh, extremely rapid progress and not much time to think about the implications of it. So um, you know, I'm I consider myself a, uh, a rational optimist. Optimist. I uh, I believe that biotech doesn't have to be deadly or bad for us to completely change our lives. Uh, but but that said, um, what's an area of major foreseeable health advancement that gives you pause, you know, thinking about the ethics involved. It, it, it's a great point, Matt. It's a great point. Um, these technologies are, are powerful. They are, uh, they are powerful in a way that we haven't had to deal with in the past. And when I say that, what I mean is that we, there's a possibility of changing what's called your germline, which is the, the DNA that you pass on to your children. Uh, and you can imagine these same gene editing tools that are used to treat sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia and other diseases being used for um, uh, creating traits and, and, and imbuing uh, children with traits that are preferable or uh, trendy, uh, but not related to disease. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a real ethical line there, and, and we've already approached it. We've already approached it. Um, some experiments have been tried in other countries uh, that, uh, that really give scientists and ethicists pause. Uh, and so we have to be thinking about this ahead of time. And I, I do think that it really, it really calls to mind that as we, as we enter this next, this next era of scientific advancement, uh, the advances are coming fast and fierce, and they're coming along every every discipline, whether it's computing, whether it's biology, whether it's even physics uh, and even astronomy, our understanding of the universe. And as those, as those advances come, they're going to challenge, they're going to challenge um, our sense of what's right and wrong. They're going to challenge our understanding of ourselves, and they're going to challenge our relationship with nature. And in each of those instances, uh, it is really important for us to start um, start investing a little bit in the social sciences around, not a little bit, maybe a lot, uh, in the social sciences around uh, how we as a species are going to be reacting to these advances, these scientific advances and these technological advances. You know, we've already seen that, my gosh, my, my, my phone has changed, has changed me as a human being, and I'm sure it has you as well. Um, and we don't know the ramifications of that. 
And so we need to, we need to start making those investments as well. And that's, that's also science. It's social science. And it's, uh, it's a place where we need to be making investments because uh, we don't know what's coming around the corner. Some of it could be absolutely wonderful and some of it could be scary. Yeah, well said. And, um, you know, I imagine some of that uh, critical social science research relates to how to communicate science in ways that people are going to understand it and um, find it meaningful and um, not be unnecessarily scared of it. Um, So I guess another question related to the speed of these breakthroughs and, you know, the rapid pace of innovation is how do we ensure that citizens, you know, the public is involved in this process, in this conversation, and um, that, you know, our, our progress is infused with the moral considerations that the public is concerned about. And I guess I would just tag on to that. Do we, do we have the right institutions in place to make this happen? Or there's sort of new institutions we need to create in order to um, include the public? It's, it's a truly important question. Um, you know, I've, I've heard others put it more eloquently than I can. Uh, Alondra Nelson, who's the, the acting director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, she said something, I'll, I'll paraphrase it here. She said that um, uh, when, when scientists are, are you know, creating the diagnostic, when they're creating the technology, uh, it matters who is inputting the algorithm. It matters uh, who is developing uh, the algorithm. It matters who is designing the experiment. Uh, because uh, what happens is, you know, the science is no longer this lonely endeavor where there's a, uh, a scientist in a laboratory alone. Uh, we, have, uh, we have many, many people on big multidisciplinary teams. And if we want to ensure that the way the technology can be used, if we've thought about that from every angle, then we need to have uh, uh, people with varied experiences and varied backgrounds uh, and yet informed about the science, uh, expert in the science, uh, working on those problems. Uh, it's not just about the end goal. The end goal, sometimes we talk about health disparities and we talk about uh, these, these challenges with um, the way technology is used. That is a product, a consequence, a consequence of what we didn't do on the front end. And so you are right that we have got to, uh, we're going to have to make sure that uh, that. First of all, that the scientific workforce uh, has uh, has a varied set of experiences that are brought to the table, but that also, uh, because those varied experiences are at the table, they can then speak to their communities and they can bring in inputs into how will this how will this technology how will this advance affect my community? What are some of the pitfalls of this advance uh, to my community? Uh, you know, there, there's some there's some uh, some examples already taking place. Uh, you see it around the uh, the culture uh, that has grown up and that is incredibly uh, unique and wonderful and rich around um, uh, people who are born with hearing loss. Um, and that community uh, has built an incredible incredible culture, uh, one that is different and varied and valuable. Um, and what is the effect of cochlear implants in that community? Um, and we have to think about that. And I don't think there's any one, one right answer. I think that there's a, a community conversation that has to happen uh, ahead of time. Well, we're about to run into a hundred of those, uh, of those conundrums. 
And uh, the institutions that we need are to make sure that when an NIH grant goes out, the National Institutes of Health, when, when it funds science, that the scientists who are working on it at least have started to think about the possible ramifications so that they can include uh, people from the communities that might be affected, people from the communities that should be affected, uh, and scientists from those communities. And, uh, and I think that's a, a real strength of the United States uh, is that we do have uh, an incredible diversity from which to draw. Uh, we have an incredible diversity from which uh, great, great scientists can be made. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, I think. And yeah, you, you mentioned sort of the importance of cross-disciplinary background or having multiple experts in the room who each bring, um, you know, their respective experience and expertise. And I'm curious, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the erosion of the public's perception of experts, maybe especially during the pandemic. And it seems like expert has become almost a derogatory term in, in some circles. Uh, but do you think there's some validity to concerns people have about the perils of specialization? Like, Is some of the, the criticism or scorn toward experts justified in the sense that most experts are specialists and specialists are you know, subject to the silo effect, and it, it just doesn't capture the increasing vastness of scientific knowledge and the complexity of the world today. Uh, Matt, you've laid it out nicely. You know, in the 16th century, it was possible for one smart and wise human being to know essentially the totality of all the science out there. Um, and, uh, you know, today uh, it is impossible for any one human being to know the totality of a sub-sub-sub-sub-discipline of science. And so uh, what that leads to is this specialization that you talk about. And what it also leads to is because our science has become so powerful, uh, we need precision to talk about it with one another. And precision leads you to jargon. Um, it just, it, it inevitably does. You have to be able to name uh, very precise pieces of information uh, about your science. And that's, that's really important because you need precision and accuracy when you're talking to another scientist in your field. And every scientist is taught this. Precision is about uh, making sure that all the words fit into one uh, very small, uh, uh, small little window. And accuracy is making sure that all those, uh, all those words are going in the same direction. So you have to do both those things if you're a, if you're a scientist. However, when you are communicating your science, uh, into, uh, into the public, jargon becomes the enemy of communication. Jargon becomes the enemy of actually getting um, uh, understanding. And so uh, what we have to do as scientists is to, is to be able to do situational communication. And that's hard. It's hard. It requires a lot of judgment because there are places where precision really matters. But if you can dial back the precision when it's okay and doesn't change, um, uh, uh, change the nature of what you're trying to say, it's important to be able to do that. Because if you can pull back on the precision, you can give analogies, you can give metaphors, you can give, um, uh, you can give um, thought experiments that tell the story, that tell the story. And this is where that journalism piece comes back. Uh, and it comes right back to our conversation. Because if you can tell the story in a way that, uh, that provides the conundrums that we're going to face, that provides the, um, uh, the ethical uh, consequences of some of the choices that we're making uh, in a way that is understandable, 
uh, and in a way that is, uh, that is relatable, uh, then you are actually doing the science right. Because one of the things that we've seen is that regardless of how amazing the science is, uh, you know, the, the, the science to get vaccines into people's uh, bodies in a year is extraordinary. Uh, you know, and some people call it a miracle. I don't call it a miracle. I call it amazing hard, hard work uh, based on investment by Congress and, and, uh, and a whole bunch of really smart people. But if it sits in a warehouse somewhere, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so the science communication is a critical part of that pathway. And if we can dial back the precision, uh, we, can, we, can, we can be more relatable. But, it, you know, it starts before that. It starts with trust. Uh, if we are going to have a conversation in our communities, um, you know, if you want to talk in Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, with a state legislator, probably the worst thing you can do is fly in me from Washington, D.C., uh, or fly in the, the head of the National Academies of Science or, or Dr. Tony Fauci. Uh, you want to have someone who has a relationship in the community, a scientist who has a relationship in the community, uh, that th we know that there's shared values. And if there are shared values, um, then there's a level of trust that's already built that you can build upon. And then you can talk about those analogies and metaphors uh, about, the, about the technology or science you want to talk about and get the point across and help get to a decision. Um, help get to decision making, help get to, to understanding. Uh, and that is, it's something that we're going to have to learn as scientists. We're not great at it. We're not great at it, but we've got to get better because the world's going to demand it of us uh, in the coming era. Yeah, that sounds like the right recipe for success to, to practice and hone and, and get better at. And along the lines of trust and shared values and including people in the conversation, I uh, wanted to ask you about membership organizations. And AAAS is a great organization for cultivating more interest and trust in science, especially as um, we've seen member-driven organizations decline. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, something that uh, is a really interesting phenomenon. I, I think that I, I saw one study that found that 68% of organizations surveyed had difficulty growing their membership in 2019, and 25% didn't grow at all, and 11% even shrank uh, last uh, in 2019. Why is that happening, and um, what do you think that we uh, can do about it, and wh what is AAAS doing to kind of like um, counter that uh, that unfortunate trend? Yeah. Um, you know, AAAS, we're fortunate in that our membership is predominantly scientists, and uh, that that uh, that membership has uh, has stayed level for quite some time. We had a a blip of positive uh, of of growth actually uh, in 2016 and 2017, uh, really in um, uh, in response to uh, concerns about science and the way science was being treated uh, in the uh, in the government. Uh, and so we've had we've been fortunate that our scientists continue to be members. What's changed is what's changed is that. Um, in, in today's world, uh, that, uh, you know, for every kind of membership organization, going from, uh, from Boy Scouts to Girl Scouts to, um, uh, to the Kiwanis and to the Rotary Club, uh, that sort of um, maintained relationship, engaged relationship, has been hard to keep in the fast-paced world that we're living in. And then throw in a pandemic, and my gosh, it becomes really, really challenging. But what we've noticed at AAAS is that beyond our paid membership. Um, we have millions of people 
who come to the organization for information, whether it's through the, through the websites of, uh, of science, the journal Science and, and its uh, family uh, of journals, uh, whether it's to our news site, whether it's to our AAAS website, um, we have millions of people that come there. And they are open to, uh, to our communication. They are open to engagement with us. They even want to volunteer. Some of them even feel like they're members, even though they're not, they're not members in the traditional sense. And for organizations that want to um, expand their influence, that want to have a positive impact on the, uh, on the world around us, you have to, I think you have to take what the world gives you. And what the world is giving us right now um, is a chance. It's giving us a chance, an open door through social media, through our websites, through our digital, um, digital communications to say, all right, you got, a, you got a moment. You got a moment to talk to me. What are you going to say? Uh, and if what you say uh, isn't, uh, isn't engaging, isn't valuable, uh, you know, there's, there's two ways around it. You can be transactional. You can be a, a member of Amazon Prime and get a transaction for it and give me something of value for, for my engagement of time. Or it can be about um, engagement based on shared values and mission. And for a place like AAAS, that's what it's about. And so giving you what the, uh, taking what the world gives you, with this, which is this opportunity for influence of these millions of people who want to engage about science, who want to read about the news from science, um, that's, uh, I think that's the key uh, for these organizations. Take the world, what the world is giving you. Uh, you can't be wedded to old models because those old models don't work anymore in the 21st century. Um, but there's something new here. There's something new here. And there are people... If you engage with them, they will come back, they will volunteer, they will put their heart and soul into your mission if you can, uh, if you can show the shared values and if you can show that uh, level of engagement, which is what, which is what AAAS is trying to do. Yeah, that, that, that's great. Uh, I, I think that a lot of wisdom in, in what you just said, and I, I imagine that catching people when they're young is another sort of important part of this. Um, and COVID seems to have highlighted that many people have grown up with significant skepticism about science. And you've, you've spoken and written about the importance of early STEM education. I believe you participate in schools as a science mentor. I wondered if you could talk about what your experiences have been like as a mentor and are there specific things about the education, uh, about the education system that you'd like to see fixed to nurture greater enthusiasm and opportunity among kids for learning science. Yeah, I think it's almost a cliche now for everybody to say that every child is a scientist. Um, you know, cliches have this wonderful thing that sometimes they're true. Uh, and I, th- I do think every I do think every kid is a scientist. You know, we we see how gravity works. We uh, we test um, uh, we test what's possible, and we in schools, in some schools, we um, we knock it out of us. You know, we. We, uh, we take the really interesting part and we put that at the back of the book, in the appendix, and we say, here's a bunch of stuff for you to read and memorize. Um, and that's not the exciting part. So I participate in things called, uh, in an event called the Science Olympiad, uh, which is really about letting kids explore on their own um, uh, these different subjects and then come together in a friendly competition to, uh, uh, to talk about what they've learned. Uh, and some of it is building events where they build bridges out of straws or they build um, uh, uh, windmills and that kind of thing. Uh, but what it does is it, it makes this all real. And it shows, uh, particularly whenever you design the, 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 the events in a certain way, 
it shows that there's, there's a reason. There's a reason why you're learning this stuff. There's a reason why that equation matters. Um, uh, and it, it gives you this sense of accomplishment that you can do it. You can do it when you're, uh, when you're eight years old or seven years old. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of the challenges. You know, we've, 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 sort of, we've sort of told the world that science is hard. And, and look, science, there's, there's parts of science that are hard. Math, math, is, math is challenging. Um, but I am of the belief that there are people who can, uh, who can do discrete mathematics, who can do quantum physics, and who can do um, uh, the highest levels of biology and biochemistry who are living all over the world. Uh, they are in uh, Palo Alto, California. They're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They're also in the Mississippi Delta. They're also in Appalachia. They're also in, um, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. They're also in Europe. They're everywhere. And uh, if we're going to solve the challenges that, that are facing us, uh, whether it's climate change or uh, future pandemics or food and water insecurity, uh, we're going to need these minds. And so reaching them when they're young, showing them that science is possible for them, um, and, uh, and getting them to that next step of supporting them in the sciences. And, and this is a really key piece. And um, thank you for giving me just a second of time to, to go into this. It's, one, it's wonderful to, to get them excited about it. But here's the challenge. Uh, we get them excited. But then if you want to be a scientist, it is, you know, you got to go to graduate school. You got to go and do, do research uh, at, a, at, a, at a university somewhere. And if if you don't have, right now, if you don't have a parental safety net to help you with that, um, you can't do it. And that, what that does is it, it narrows the scope of people who can go into the sciences. You, we talked about, you know, I grew up in, in Hickory, North Carolina, where most people worked in manufacturing. And when I thought about being a scientist, I had to, I had to make sure I had people that I could uh, emulate, first of all, um, as, uh, as, the, as the people that uh, were showing me the way. But then I also had to have parents who, though they worked in factories, they believed in the idea that it was important to study the sciences. And right now, we don't have that all across this nation. We don't have it all across the world. And so building up the infrastructure so that there are some systemic challenges out there. You know, when the pandemic happened, if you were a graduate student in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard or MIT, if you, if you were living with three roommates while you went to graduate school and suddenly they all went home to their parents because of uh, the pandemic, but you didn't have a home to go home to, um, suddenly you were forced to pay rent for four people. And you can't do that, right? And so this is the kind of thing we've got to be thinking about in terms of what are the challenges for getting um, these amazing people who can get into the sciences because if we can get them there, you know, there's always the exception. There's always the, the exception that proves the rule and people love to point those out. But there's systemically challenges to, uh, to folks all across uh, our nation and all across the world getting into these places. And we need them. We need them to solve these, uh, to solve these big challenges. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The inclusivity is, is really important. I wonder if there's something cultural, too, that I, just when you were talking about how science is hard and people think of science as being hard, you know, we kind of have a, uh, a pain phobic culture in some ways. And, you know, there's something cultural that I think is important about instilling that value that things that are hard and challenging can be fun because they're hard and challenging. And uh, I don't know. I just wonder if that's 
that's a, a, a piece, a dynamic that uh, is, is important in, in this whole equation. I've seen, it, I've seen it everywhere. You know, we have this thing called the Makers Program here at AAAS, where we have uh, students uh, from, um, uh, from institutions that are not what we call R1 institutions. These are the, they're not from the top-level research universities. They're from, they're from HBCUs that are not yet R1. They're from smaller universities around the country. And they come together in this Makers Program and you know what? They're not afraid of hard work. They're not afraid of the, the math and the science. What they want to do is they want to apply it to something that is valuable to them or their communities. Um, and so um, if you talk about, hey, I want, to, you know, I want to create an app that yet another teenager is going to use. Okay, that's fine. You can make some money at it. Um, if you're talking about an app that helps, um, helps erase health disparities because it brings patients closer to treatment, suddenly that involves something going on in their community. Um, and it's amazing the power, the power that comes from uh, providing a compelling problem because people will they, will, they will climb mountains, they will get through valleys um, to get to something that, that solves a real world problem in their community. They won't necessarily do that for the, um, you know, there are some that, that love astronomy and that want to see the stars and, and understand them. And there are some that will, that will walk through fire for that. But you know, there's a there's a large portion of people that want to really uh, make their communities better, uh, and that goes for folks all over the world. And so um, we've got to be able to we've got to be able to present the problems uh, in a way that make that make the hardness worth it. Yeah, great great point to end on, Sudip. I know that you have to run. Um, it's this has been an absolute pleasure for me. I'm a huge admirer of AAAS and your work and. It's always fascinating talking with you about these issues. Thanks so much for being a guest on Making Sense of Science, and I hope that we get a chance to connect again really soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be coming out with new podcasts on a regular basis, so if you like the show you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make meaning of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button for the Making Sense of Science podcast. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism, with an eye on the flourishing and prosperity that could be ours if we stay open-minded to it. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.